Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick. Graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is David, and you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelous, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode, and I love saying this part every single time, we get into the usual rigmarole and introducing our very special guest. We want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them, our social medias. And we will, but you go ahead. First up, go on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Marvelists. Give us a like on there. Go on Twitter and Instagram at The Marvelists. Give us a follow on there. And then individually, myself on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster, on Instagram and Twitter at Peter Melnick. And God knows why, I'm on TikTok at Peter Melnick, but better. Amen. Really, that is the name. And then individually, the other one on the other end of the tin can and string, well, he's in studio, so it's not really a tin can or a string, but... Eddie's only on one social media platform, and that is Instagram, and that is at... Eddie9193. And also go on all of your iOS and Android devices. Go on SoundCloud, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, you name it, we're on there. Rate, review, subscribe on iTunes if you're on there as well. That's, uh, you can get it on your iPhones, your iPads. Not the Apple, well, maybe on the Apple Watch. Well, just one of them, please. Not all at the same time, though. Yeah, maybe. But, Uh, Eddie, on the other end of the tin cannon string, we are joined with a prolific writer, one of the men responsible with one of my all-time favorite runs of The Incredible Hulk. We are joined with another Peter on the line, and he's not Parker or Rasputin. uh, Rabbit? Peter David, ladies and gentlemen. Stop that, Eddie. (laughs) What can I say? Peter, David, thank you. Welcome. Oh, happy to be here. I'm going to hopefully not be too confused when I designate one Peter from the other. I mean, I'll talk about my, you know, career at Marvel, the one time I picked <laughs> a book, and... That's it. So, Peter, it's a cliche question, but how did you get your start as a comic book fan? As a comic book fan? Yeah. Um, I first was exposed to comic books at uh, my local barber shop. He had Harvey comics there, not superhero books, but he had Casper the Friendly Ghost, Wendy the Good Little Witch. I mean, I was so clueless about comics that when Casper would turn invisible, they would have little dots on his body to indicate that he was invisible. And I thought that was some sort of play along thing, and I would sit there with a pencil and connect the dots, (laughs) you know. Um, I discovered superhero comics because of the George Reeves Superman television series, because that would always say at the end, Superman is based on the character appearing in Superman magazines, not comic books, mind you, magazines. And I thought there are magazines because, you know, this was, of course, before DVRs and DVDs and play on demand and all the things that people are accustomed to having now. I could only watch Super, I could only experience Superman at 4.30 p.m. every day. 
But I figured if there were magazines, I could crack open the magazine and read it whenever I wanted to. And it turned out that there was a magazine store a few blocks from my house, and they had a fairly good stock of DC Comics. And that's where I picked up Superman, and um, I, I found Supergirl, I found Batman. I found a character whose name I pronounced Akua Man, which I thought was a strange name for a character, and eventually I asked my father, what does Akua mean? And he looked at it and said, no, that's Aquaman. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> I wasn't the brightest of kids. Um, and I discovered Marvel Comics when I was visiting my, my cousin Danny one day. And he had Fantastic Four Annual Number 3. That was the uh, wedding of Reed and Sue. And if you remember that story, that had guest appearances from pretty much every superhero and supervillain in the entire Marvel Universe. And yet, thanks to Stan Lee's writing and Jack Kirby's art, I was actually able to understand the entire story, you know, even though I was completely unfamiliar with any of these characters. Indeed, the only thing I didn't really understand was Stan and Jack showing up at the end at the, uh, at the wedding and being kept out by the usher, you know, because they didn't know who the Stan and Jack guy were. But other than that, I... I that got me into the Marvel Universe, and I was pretty much hooked from that point on. Now, you know, growing up, we all have our preferences, Marvel or DC, and what was it for you growing up? Initially, DC Comics, but I found myself slowly gravitating over to Marvel because the characters were much less perfect. The Fantastic Four fought like a family, um, Spider-Man started out as Peter Parker, a, a teenager who had lots of problems, and he became Spider-Man, a superhero who had lots of problems. Um, you know, the, the, the DC characters were basically gods. I mean, they gave them arbitrary weaknesses to try and bring them a little bit more down to earth. Superman was vulnerable to a green rock. Martian Manhunter had a problem with fire. Green Lantern, depending upon which one you're talking about, was vulnerable either to wood or to the color yellow, which meant that you could pretty much take out any Green Lantern with a sharpened number two pencil. <laughs> um, but, you know, so their weaknesses were pretty much arbitrary. Spider-Man's weaknesses was that he, he didn't have any money and his aunt was sick. And the public hated him, and he didn't have a girlfriend. And you know, he would stand there at the roof, uh, on the roof at the end of every issue, having managed to defeat the bad guy, and still run through a litany of every single problem that he had. You know, as you're growing up, that's somebody that you can read. So slowly, I found myself gravitating more towards the, the Marvel heroes. Although I will still always have a fondness for the DC heroes, and they're who I started out with. And one of the things, you know, that I've noticed as a fan of your work is you're someone who has definitive runs at both companies. You know, you're known so much for your Hulk run and your yeah. X Factor and Spider-Man 2099. And then over at the Distinguished Competition, you end up having phenomenal runs on Aquaman, Supergirl. Yeah. And what is it like knowing that, you know, there aren't a lot of creators who can have that claim? 
You, on the other hand, do. Like, what is it like knowing that feeling? I don't know. I, I think there's a few out there. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I don't pretend to be anything else other than a very lucky guy. I mean, I read a study that said that 80, something like 85% of people in this country hate their job. You know, they do it in order to pay bills, but that's about it. It's not what they wanted to be when they grew up. I wanted to be a writer when I grew up, and I am. I mean, you know, I have a morning commute of about 10 seconds, and I sit around and I make shit up all day. I just consider myself incredibly fortunate. And we're very fortunate, you know, myself as a fan of your stuff, just to be able to experience this. And, you know, with the advent of, you know, programs such as Marvel Unlimited, I'm able to read pretty much your entire back catalog of work, especially on Hulk, in a matter of seconds. You're a fast reader. 12 years worth of stuff on Hulk in seconds. That's pretty good. (laughs) Well, the one thing about that run on Hulk, first off, how did you get on the title? (laughs) Bob, Har- I was working at the Marvel offices at the time, and Bob Harris came into my office, and he wanted to know if I would be interested in writing Hulk. Now, you have to understand that I had been writing Spider-Man and gotten fired off of Spider-Man because there was incredible resentment by Marvel editorial that this guy who worked in the direct sales department was writing comic books. So when Bob offered me the Hulk, I said, aren't you worried you're going to get blowback from other people on editorial. And Bob said, no, nobody else wants to write it. And I said, what do you mean? And he says, I've offered it to everybody. He'd offered it to every writer. He'd offered it to every editor who wrote on the side. Nobody wanted to write the Hulk. So he wasn't worried that he was going to get pushed back from anyone at editorial because since nobody else was interested in writing the Hulk, why would they care if Peter Dave was going to write it? And I kind of went, okay, well, you know, I stopped reading the book at that point. I mean, you know, to my mind, the Hulk was this monosyllabic beast who said Hulk smash, which I didn't think was going to really play to my strength considering my major strength is dialogue. And Bob said, no, 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 he's not like that anymore. I said, what do you mean? He said, Al Milgram restored him to being gray and cunning, like he was in his very first appearances. And indeed, he had. A lot of people asked me, how how did you come up with the idea of making him gray? I didn't. He was like that when I came on the book. Um, I was told that now it was Rick Jones who was the monosyllabic Hulk, and Bob said, if I wanted to, I could concentrate on Rick Jones as the Hulk. And I said, no, Rick Jones should not be the Hulk. Rick Jones should be the one ordinary guy in the Marvel Universe. I mean, you know, this, of course, was used before A-bomb. But um, I said, no, no, if, if I came on the book, the first thing I would do is get rid of Rick Jones being the Hulk, which I immediately did. And I focused on the Gray Hulk. And... You know, I said that I would do it for six months, and, you know, 12 years later, you know, my my run on the book ended. And one of the things about that run of the Hulk is the, you know, the binge-worthy aspect of it. And, you know, I didn't do it in seconds, mind you, but 
going through your entire run over the course of a little over a month, it's one of those series that, you know, you just keep wanting to know what's happening next. And when you were writing that, we, you know, we didn't have that ability back, you know, in the 1980s, 1990s of everything all at once, you know, that ability to have that. Right. And what was your biggest incentive in regards to the, not incentive, but what was your biggest, what was your thought process behind of how you were making it be such a book like that, so rapid? Well, initially, when I was researching it, I came across the story that was written by Bill Madlow, or Barry Windsor Smith, has since said that he came up with the idea, and I have no clue who did, but Bill wrote the story that showed that Bruce Banner was abused as a child. And my research into what was at that time called multiple personality disorder indicated that that was a, that was a condition that was usually preceded by being abused as a child. And that's when I thought, wow, now we know why Bruce's attempts to cure himself have never worked. I mean, aside from the fact that if he did, there's no book anymore. Bruce Banner spent years trying to cure the Hulk from the outside in. He was trying to undo the effects of the gamma radiation. But the problem was, was that the Hulk, his multiple personality disorder, was present before the gamma rays hit him. That he always carried the potential to be the Hulk around in him. And indeed, even after being hit by the gamma rays, we saw several different personalities emerge over time, which meant to me that if Bruce was ever going to actually manage to cure himself of being the Hulk, he would have to do it through the way that multiple personality is customarily treated, through hypnosis. And so I knew that eventually I would be working toward a story in which I would have the pretty much the only psychiatrist we have in the Marvel Universe, Doc Samson, sit down with pretty much the only hypnotist we have in the Marvel Universe, the Ringmaster, yep. and hypnotize the Hulk into merging all the personalities together. And that would give us a brand new incarnation of the Hulk, in which you would have the form and physicality of the Hulk, but the for the first time, merged personality of Bruce Banner. You know, because my my feeling was we had never actually seen Bruce Banner as a single, merged, normal adult. You know, the, the MBD already existed back when we first met him in Incredible Hulk number one. So my feeling was that eventually we would have him being for the first time a totally merged individual. And in doing that, I was essentially laying the ground for the maestro who would come some years later. Because my feeling was that they always say that eventually the son becomes the father. Well, his father, Brian Banner, was a right royal bastard. And I thought, if his merged personality is what's running the show, over time he may become more and more like his father which means it's going to become more and more dangerous, which pretty much lay the groundwork for the maestro. Now, with a lot of this, you know, one of the 
trademarks of that run of the Hulk is your incorporation of humor. And my biggest takeaway from the series is it's not a comedy, but it's not a drama. It's, of course, you know, a dramedy kind of aspect to it. And what was your biggest, what was your decision to go in that route of that style? Because in real life, it is the human tendency to react to things in humorous ways. I mean, when the Challenger blew up, what was the people saying within 24 hours? Hey, what does NASA stand for? Need another seven astronauts? You know, which is a horrific thing to say, but it is our tendency to react with humor. I mean, yeah. That, I mean, Raiders of the Lost Ark is a straight-up adventure, but what's everybody's favorite moment? When the swordsman is standing 30 feet away, whipping his cutlass around, and then he just takes out his gun and shoots him. You know, I mean, that always, you know, that gets a huge, huge reaction. I mean, certainly did the very first time I saw the film. And what was interesting was that that was something that Harrison Ford came up with while they were filming it. That wasn't the script writer. That was Harrison Ford was wearing 102 fever and had dysentery. And he said, why don't I just take out my gun and shoot him? And they said, okay. And that's exactly what they did. <laughs> it is customary for people to react to things with humor. It's, it's a coping mechanism. You know, I mean, we keep laughing at Donald Trump because he's so freaking horrific that we have to laugh at it because otherwise we're just going to want to think to a corner and go fetal and stop. You know, it is just normal to make jokes about things. My, my, to me, the best idea of humor that Alfred Hitchcock said on the Merv Griffin show, when Griffin asked him what his definition of humor was, and Hitchcock said, Imagine a young couple is in a darkened room and they're cringing against the wall and they're terrified because something's at the door and you hear the scratching at the door and slowly the door opens and they hold their breath and in walks a cat. And your impulse is to let out a relieved laugh because, oh, they're not in danger. And then you suddenly realize that Whatever it is they're afraid of is actually already in the room, and it's about to get them. Hitchcock said that the best kind of laughter is laughter that suddenly catches in your throat. So I would typically use humor as something to leaven a serious moment, but then set it up so that something that then immediately happened had you laugh and then go, <gasps> You don't see this. Because when you're laughing, you let your guard down. And that's the point at which you can then catch the reader off guard and knock them on their ass. And one bit of humor in your run of the Hulk that certainly caught a lot of us off guard was the brush with death during the wedding of ah. Rick Jones. And one of our listener questions you know, relates to that. And how did that come about? How that version of death showed up in a Marvel book? Basically, I came up with the idea. And I thought, 
that could be really funny, but I'm going to have to get DC to sign off on it. Um, so the first person I called was Neil, because if Neil said, no, I don't want to do that, then there's no point in contacting DC. You know, I described to Neil what I want to do, and, you know, and I said she gives, she gives her a brush. And Neil said, ah, because she had a brush with death. And I said, right. He said, yeah, that sounds great. You should definitely do that. And I went, okay. And I called Paul Levitt at D.C., and I described to him what I wanted to do. And the first thing Paul said is, okay, well, you're going to have to call Neil and get him to sign off on it. I said, already done. I said, I'm very clear. He did not want to see your face, and he did not want to see the onk. And I got the artwork pages back, and there, big as life, was the onk hanging around her neck. And I went to Bobby Chase, the editor, and I said, we got the onk at I promised Paul we would not show it. And so Art Corrections took the onk out. And if you look, basically what they did was they redrew it so that it's tucked under her shirt. You know, you see the, you see the very top of the loop the rest of the onk is gone, mm. and that's fine. We can show the very top of the loop, but as long as the onk wasn't visible, and it came out, and the fans just freaking loved it. <laughs> I think they also loved that I had her say, I want to get out of here before that idiot Thanos shows up. Um, <laughs> you know, because Marvel has visualized death, but she's speaking woman in a, in a black robe. You know, you can't have her wedding i mean just you know no but um but yeah just just tossing that in i, I thought that was you know a nice little touch it's it, you know marvel's done that on occasion that's just dc just tossing in characters from time to time little kind of nudge, nudge, wink winks we all kind of live in the same universe thing and one of the things about the whole wedding was of course it's the wedding of rick jones and Rick yeah. is one of those characters where he's had one of the most interesting lives of any person in the Marvel Universe. And I think the only one that can beat him in terms of having an incredibly bizarre life is Frank Castle, the Punisher, because Frank has been War Machine, Frank has changed skin colors, Frank has been a Frankenstein's monster, among yeah. many, many, many other things. But... What do you think is the next logical progression for Rick Jones's life? Just go off the rails in the realm of bizarre. Well, my feeling is that Rick is the one being in the Marvel Universe. He's not cosmically aware. He's comically aware. Mm-hmm. He's aware of the fact that he's in a comic book, that, that his universe isn't real, that he's a fictional character. Um, so if, if, if I, if I, if I was going to, if I was just going to do whatever the hell I want to do with Rick, I would, you know what? I just, we can make him detective and have him just solve the, you know, but he would be able to go anywhere in the Marvel universe. I mean, anywhere on earth, anywhere in various planets, I would have him turn up in everywhere from nowhere to the savage land. With absolutely no explanation of how the hell he got there. Oh, good. And he just, have, <laughs> just have him always showing up to solve whatever thing time has just gone. 
Oh, that's good, because then he wouldn't need anything like the Negabands to switch off with Captain Marvel. No, no, no. You know, he wouldn't have the Negabands. He would, he would be Rick. And I would I would always have him with some... I mean, there was, there was one issue of The Incredible Hulk where I had them fighting the scrolls and Bruce and Betty actually escaped from the scroll ship. And I was on page twenty one of the script and I suddenly realized I closed the scroll ship. And I suddenly realized I completely get Rick off the scroll ship. And I went, God damn it, because I didn't want to go back and rewrite plot just to get Rick out of there. And I went, you know what? Fuck it. And I had him falling down to earth with a parachute. And Bruce says, where the hell did you get a parachute? And Rick says, oh, I always have a mini parachute with me just in case I have to leap from an exploding scroll saucer. <laughs> and Bruce says, that's ridiculous. And Rick says, why? I just had to, didn't I? And Bruce has no response for that. And that, to my mind, was the beginning of my, my slow revelation that Rick Jones is completely aware that he knows that he's in a comic book and he's pretty much prepared just about anything because no matter what happens to the guy, he's seen it. He's done it all. He has experienced every single insane thing that the comic book universe can throw at him. And he's, you know, he's still there. And his attitude is bring it on, you know, bring it on bitch. I have survived everything. And one of the, uh, I, I lost my thought. Eddie, you go ahead. Yeah, well, Peter, David, we're going to be jumping around with a bunch of things, of course, that you've done. I'm looking for information that I've gotten printed up, too, so I have some, some reference. And uh, I see that you kind of, well, let me, go, let me go to this one now. Spider-Man 2099. How in the series of all those 2099 titles and characters, I don't know where, you know, that fell in the lineup, but how did that wind up uh, coming about? Marvel approached me and said a lot of writers about pitching a concept for Spider-Man 2099. All they knew was that he was going to be a technician who worked for this mega corporation called Alchemax. That was it. They had no character. They had no work, anything like that. And they asked to come up for a The first thing I said to myself is, well, I'm not going to have to be descendant of Peter Parker, because that's obvious. So that's off the table. And what I basically did was I zigged everywhere that Stanley and Steve Disco zagged. Peter Parker was a teenager, Miguel would be in his 20s. Peter Parker was an orphan, Miguel's mother would be around. Peter Parker was an only child. Miguel would have a brother. Peter Parker had no idea how to approach girls. Miguel would be engaged. You know, um, Spider-Man basically stuck to the walls through magic, basically. Uh, Miguel would have talons on his fingers. You know, that would be visible. That would enable him to stick to the walls. Uh, Spider-Man swings around Manhattan. Miguel would glide around like a parachute spider does. He would have these foils on his back to enable him to glide on wind currents. You know, 
I made him, di- and, and I guess most importantly, Peter Parker was a generic white guy. Miguel would be of mixed ethnicity. I decided to make him half Irish and half Mexican because I basically just took two nationalities that just did not remotely seem to go together and mashed them up and gave us Miguel O'Hara. I named him Miguel after my friend Miguel Ferrer. And I, I came up with his basic origin. I came up with some samples of some villains he could fight. And I sent it off to Marvel. And about a week later, I got a call from Joey Cavalieri, who was the editor of the 2099 line. And Joey said, we love the outline that you came up with. First of all, you're the only writer who didn't have to be a descendant of Peter Parker. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, and they loved it. Basically, offered me um, a bonus of several thousand dollars and the chance to write the comic book. And I said, sure. Absolutely. Especially when Stan Lee was going to be writing Radish, which meant I would be able to, uh, to collaborate with, with a number of other writers, including Stan the Man. And next I knew, we slay her, and we were having our very first 2099 gathering. And we know, at first we all got to, we all sat and we chatted in broad strokes about the 2099 universe. And then we broke up into smaller groups, and I will always remember sitting there with Rickley and Artie as I described what I wanted the costume to look like. And Rick sat there and drafted up the first rendering of I saw in some of the info that when you were younger, you got to meet one of your favorites, one of your idols, I guess, writing, and that was Stephen King. Got an autograph in the uh, Dance Macabre, and good luck with your writing career. How yeah. how cool was it to you know fast forward to like 2006 or whatever and be able to write for when Marvel did the Dark Tower gunslinger stuff? And was there any future communication with Stephen King and say, hey, you signed my Dance Macabre a long time ago, and here, I'm doing this now? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I will always remember being at New York Comic Con where we were going to be doing a panel about Dark Tower, and Steve was going to be there. And all of us were sitting in the... I was there, Jay Lee was there, Robin Firth was there. We were all in the green room waiting for Steve, and I figured he was going to walk in with, like, you know his agents and his managers and his entourage. And, no, it was just him. He walked in and said, hi, I'm Steve, you know, as, as, as perfectly self-effacing a guy as you could possibly imagine. And, you know, I, I, I told him about that, that whole thing about when I had did it, been planned and he autographed the book. And we were chuckling about that because now here I was and this is where my writing career takes me. And I will always remember sitting at this big table on stage nearby Steve, and we had about 2,000 people in that room. And one guy got up and he said, I just want to say that Stephen King is my favorite novelist and Peter David is my favorite comic book writer. So this project is like a dream. (laughs) And Steve and I looked at each other and we high-fived each other. (laughs) And the little fanboy in me thought, how has my life come to this? That I'm sitting on a goddamn stage in front of 2,000 people high-fiving Stephen King. <laughs> I mean, you know, I could never have seen this coming, ever, mm-hmm. ever. 
And how was it too? That again, looking at something else here, back in 2011, that you wind up. I mean, how, what does one have to do to be able to be a balloon handler? Not only for the and for the Macy's parade, Thanksgiving parade with the Spider-Man balloon. Oh, I volunteered. It was really that simple. Uh, Marvel put out a thing that said we're looking for people to handle the Spider-Man balloon at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade. And I went. I'm on. I'm, I'm on board. I'm definitely there. And you know that's that's what happened. I mean, I'd love to tell you there's some really involved story, but there's not. Um, since we had to be there at something like six in the morning, what I did was I came in the evening before and I stayed overnight in a hotel in downtown Manhattan. Apparently, I was not the only person who did that, and the hotel was aware that there were a lot of balloon handlers who were going to be just coming there the night before, and they had really cheap rates, which was very, very nice of them. And I got up, and at, and at 6 a.m., I reported to uh, Macy's, and they gave me my spiffy Spider-Man uniform. <laughs> and I went where I was supposed to go, and I was one of the guys who went marching down you know, Broadway hauling the ropes for the Spider-Man balloon. Which now, wait. I have to say. The, very really important. Awesome. Yeah, but there's a very important question here. Did you get to keep the Spider-Man costume? No. Damn. Is this is no, the no, uniform no, no. the we, one we, from your profile we had picture? We turn that in at the end. Yeah. Is that is that from your profile picture on uh, Twitter? Yes. I thought so, because I recognize that from uh, also the year you did it. Was that the year the Spider-Man balloon got hit against a uh, light pole? No. Because no, that was had, the year no, we where... We had no oh, mishaps uh, with ours. Mm-hmm. That was the year a friend of the show, Stephen Sadak of the podcast We Hate Movies, was the one responsible for that one. So, <laughs> no, we, we didn't hit anything. We, we walked down Broadway. We had no problems that I could that's hilarious. Yeah. And it's, it's again, you I, was, know, I did see the parade where the police killed Barney. I thought that was pretty oh hilarious. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, we were, myself and my daughters and my then fiance's later wife were staying at a hotel called Sofitel, which, had, which overlooked the parade. And we were sitting there watching the parade and... It was really windy, and Barney was becoming a threat. And we actually stood there and we watched the policeman basically stab Barney to death. My daughter, Aura, who was about five years old, was freaking out. I mean, we and my older daughters were trying desperately not to laugh because Aura was just coming completely unglued. But, uh, you know, I always remember killing Barney. The visual of any of those balloons accidentally hitting something and, you know, just flopping aimlessly in the air is one of the funniest visuals you will ever see. Not going to lie. I suppose. But no, uh, we had no mishaps with Spider-Man at all. Now, going back over to Spider-Man with 2099, what is it like knowing that your character of Miguel O'Hara has hit the big screen, has hit the small screen, has hit the small screen for video games and all of this stuff? Oh, I love it. I mean, you know. Let me put it to you this way. When they did the Marvel Comics screening for Spider-Verse, you know, into the Spider-Verse, mm-hmm. yeah. Dan Slott was there with a reporter. And when the lights finally came up, the reporter turned to Dan and said, 
was it who yelled yes when the caption that came on that said, meanwhile, in Nueva York? And Dan said, oh, that would be Peter David. He's the guy who created Spider-Man 2099. Uh, I was thrilled when he showed up at the end of Spider-Verse. I was in freaking hysterics. And, yeah, I've seen him in uh, on the animated show, too. I mean, I would love it if they did an actual whole TV series for Spider-Man 2099. I think that would be sensational. And one of the things with the character of 2099, you ended up coming back to the character, I believe, in 2014, correct? Yes. Now, what is it like knowing that you've had this long, illustrious career, and Marvel will always bring you back, and it's always a phenomenal book. And I'm not just saying that because you're on the other end of the line, but mm. it's, you have a solid track record with these books. And it's, what is it like, you know, Eddie, what, what is the question that we had kind of like what I'm saying, what I'm rambling with? Um, I don't know. There's a bunch of always in there, but <laughs> I'll try to look that up. But jeez. Uh, um, in regards to contemporaries. Contemporaries okay, in there somewhere. All right, so I'm just scrolling and trying to find where that uh, that question is. This is where Herb Alpert and, and uh, the Tijuana Brass of Spanish Flea would come in handy right about now. Okay, the question from Martin Kinney is, how have you, Peter David, been able to stay more relevant than most of your contemporaries? Um, how have you adapted to the change in writing style of the 80s, 90s to the more modern style? I don't know if I have. I mean, I don't know if I've adapted. I've just tried to do the best stories that I can. Um, I, I, I mean, the part of what keeps me relevant is the fans. I mean, the only reason I wound up coming back to do Spider-Man 2099 in 2014 was that Steve Wacker was leaving editorial, and he put an, a, a, and he wrote a letter that saw print that said that. Marvel was working on a Spider-Man 2099 book, which they were. But I wasn't going to be writing it. I didn't even know about it until Wacker mentioned it. And my email lit up and people said, are you writing this? And I'm going, no. In the meantime, fandom, for once, spoke with one voice. And fandom said, we would totally read a Spider-Man 2099 comic as long as Peter David's writing it. Mm. And Marvel's going, huh, maybe we want to have Peter write it. And they and I get a call from the editor, and she says, would you be interested in writing the Spider-Man 2099 comic book? And I said, okay. Uh, we, and she says, we need a five-page story by Friday that's going to run in Spider-Man, I think it was 700. And we will need the first issue by the end of next week. And I said, when is this comic coming out? And she said, July. And I said, it's May. <laughs> and she said, yes, you're running very late. <laughs> you know, this is all in the same conversation. And I went, okay. And I banged out a five-page story without having the slightest idea where I was going to go with the character. And then I pounded out issue one without having the slightest idea of where I was going to go with the character. I just tried my best to make it interesting. But, I mean, sometimes you do your best work when you don't have time to overthink this stuff. Yeah. Um, and I just, you know, I, I read where Miguel was at that point in continuity, 
And then I just kind of took it from there. And I had a lot of fun with the character, and I had fun creating other characters, too. I mean, probably my favorite was Captain America 2099, because, you know, I thought I'm going to do Captain America 2099, you know. And I, I was thinking about the transformation of Steve Rogers and so well depicted in the first Captain America movie in which he was this scrawny little guy, and then suddenly he had to speak all these muscles. And I thought, what if we did a female Captain America? And she was also with the Super Soldier Serum. You know, the thing is, Wonder Woman's supposed to be incredibly strong, but she's built like a normal, graceful woman. Captain America should look like a female bodybuilder, because that's what the Super Soldier Serum does. And that's what I said I wanted from the artist. I said, screw the idea of, ma- of, of making her look svelte and gorgeous. I want her to be absolutely jacked. And, the, uh, and, when, we, and we, we, when we circulated the first artwork of Captain America 2099, fan reactions split right down gender lines. Wow. All the female fans loved it. They said, oh, my God, finally, you know, a jacked woman. All the male fans hated it. They said she doesn't look at all sexy. (laughs) You know, I mean, it was right down gender lines, which I thought was absolutely freaking hilarious. Now, Peter, 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 I mean... (laughs) You know, nerdy male comic book fans uh, being upset about something involving women? That's going to be a first. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of staggering. But, you know, I just thought it was so interesting. I didn't see a single positive comment from a male fan. I did not see a single negative comment from a female fan. Right down gender line. I have to look this up because, i got to be honest, I don't remember seeing Captain America 2099. Was this... An individual title? Was it part of another book? No, she was a supporting character in Spider-Man 2099. And that's it, because I got that to catch up on that run. Okay, thank you. You should see how much he's got to read, Peter. No, really. you shouldn't. It really, it's just, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. Do you remember in this, the one scene in Indiana Jones with all those big crates? Imagine <laughs> that, but with comic books. <laughs> top, and also just a random golden, top, uh, you know. Top item. men, yes. Mm-hmm. That's exactly, that's that's really pretty much the point. If I only had a warehouse big enough for that, okay. I need to get you one of those golden idols, by the way. <laughs> Throw me the whip, uh, I'll give you the idol. Yes. A uh, house is not complete. You know, it is hard to believe uh, that, that uh, who played the who played the guy who said, Throw me the idol, I throw you the whip. Yes. Yeah. Alfred. Alfred Millian. Yes. Doc Ock. Uh-huh. And has there ever been an actor who's more synonymous with a character like that? Every time I, you know, I see uh, people talk about Dr. Octopus, the only one I can think of is Alfred Molina now. Well, yeah, but that's because that he's been the only live-action Dr. Octopus. Yeah, but it was pretty I mean, neat. had him show up in various animated things, and people aren't really aware of who the voices of the animated characters are. Molina is the only live-action Dr. Octopus we've had. True, true. I mean, you know, my only thing is in regards, you know, we have only one uh, Wolverine right now, and 
you know. I don't know where I'm going with this thought, but I digress. <laughs> All right, Peter, your, your uh, writing style, and I, I read that you've done comics uh, along one track, and I think work on that usually in the afternoon time and doing novel-type stuff in the morning time, and I'm assuming you, you, know, you set aside, you get into proper mindset to do each one of those, but looking at the, the comic book stuff, you, you, we're using the, the Marvel method, and we talked about this in a previous podcast episode with uh, Danny Fingeroth, I believe, and then eventually you worked out into doing a full script method, yeah. and which I guess is, is going to be markedly different. Uh, if you want to explain maybe how the full script method goes in your and in your thought process. Well, the full script method is something, well, the, the Mar, what's called the Marvel method comes from the days when you'd have Jack Kirby show up at the office and Stan would say, okay, so in this issue, the Fantastic Four still doesn't have their powers and Doctor Doom has taken over the Baxter building. And with the aid of Daredevil, they have to go in, get Doc Doom, somehow regain, and somehow regain their powers. Okay, Jack? And Jack would go, okay, Stan. And Jack would go home and show up three to four weeks later with the whole thing stenciled. And then Stan would write the dialogue. That was called the Marvel style. Stan would describe the story in broad strokes, and the artist would go ahead and do the actual storytelling. Full script, me and so when you would write a story in Marvel style, what would happen is you would say pages one to three, and you would describe what happens in pages one to three. You might throw in a few lines of dialogue. Then you go pages four to seven, and so on, breaking it up in groups of pages. Full script means that you write page one or A. And you describe what's going to be in the pet, in the panel, and then you put in the dialogue. Then you go panel B, and you put in and you describe what's happening, and you put it on the dialogue. And you do that until you finish the page, and then you go on to page two. The advantage of that is that it enables you to control the plot, and it prevents you from putting so much plot in that you've got too much for the artist to do. Mm. It also helps protect you in case you're dealing with an artist who may not be the world's best storyteller. Because if you have to count on the artist to tell the story and he doesn't have the fundamental storytelling tools, that could be a problem. So if you're telling the story for him, you're making his job that much easier. I have found that it is simpler for me to do stories Full script. Um, it enables me to keep control of the story and it enables me to compensate in case the artist is lacking some fundamental storytelling skill. That's been going on since it looks like 1990. That uh, Does that still continue with you? or? Well, the newspaper doesn't exist anymore, uh, so no. How long, how long over a run was, was that? Until the newspaper ended in the mid two thousand. In the mid two thousand, okay, okay. Now, in regards to you know your work over at the Distinguished Competition, two of the runs that you're most synonymous with are of course Aquaman and Supergirl, and they're two very much different characters. But oh yeah, what was the 
what was the initial approach for you when DC contacted you about getting to work on those characters? Um, well, let's see. For Supergirl, you know, they, they, they you know, I, I knew who Supergirl was, but I found her as a character very difficult to deal with because, you know, her, her origin just took forever to explain. You know, she was a genetically created alternate version protoplasmic being from, an all, from a pocket dimension, whatever the hell that is, <laughs> created by Lex Luthor with the, with the uh, fundamental mind of Lana Lang. What? You know, ah, yes. I mean, what the hell is that? I mean, the original Supergirl was, oh, she's Superman's cousin. All right, well, that's easy to understand. But when you get when you're having a thirty word explanation of who that hell she is, that's a problem. They say right. nothing of the fact that she seemed to be Supergirl purely arbitrarily. She could have been Supergirl, or she could have been Superboy, or she could have been Super File Cabinet. I mean, you know, she was a shapeshifter. So she had, there was no particular reason for her to be a humanoid. Um, and I, so I literally did not know what in hell she was or what she was supposed to be. And I thought, well, I got to do something to make her more grounded to humanity. And I came up with the notion of having her merge with Linda Danvers to become, you know, not to sound to Pinocchio, but to, to become a real girl. And I further came up with the notion that in doing so, she was part of a species called an Earthborn Angel. Because, and people seem to say, oh, Peter David hopelessly complicated Superman, Supergirl. No, I didn't. Mm-hmm. When I came on, she was a protoplasmic, shape-shifting being from a pocket universe with the mind of Lana Lang. When I left, she was an angel. Well, that's easy. She's an angel. Okay, I get that. She's got wings. Yeah, the man out of flame. Okay, that sounds cool. So, you know, I just, I just, you know, I thought that I simplified. And I also. Not like a one eyed, one horned flying purple people eater. I also decided that I was going to endeavor to explore topics that were not typically addressed in Superman books. And I realized that magic and spirituality were subjects that pretty much never came up in Superman because if for no other reason than that Superman is vulnerable to magic. So they minimized the number of times that he met magic beings. And especially since I was making her an angel, it seemed the perfect format to explore subjects about spirituality and faith. And so that was the direction in which I took the series. And there were, I mean, there were some people who just didn't understand what the hell I was doing. And there were other people who realized that they were reading a book that was unlike any other comic book that was being published, and they just absolutely loved it. Um, In terms of Aquaman... That was that the other one you were asking about? Yep. Yes. I really didn't 
quite understand why so many people had such contempt for Aquaman. They said, oh, he's such a limited character. Oh, he's, he's nowhere near as cool as Batman. And my attitude was, if you took Aquaman and dropped him at some random point in Gotham City, he'd be fine. He would head towards the dock if you ran into problems. Well, he's super strong. Uh, he's relatively resistant to bullets. He'd fight his way out of whatever problems he ran into. He'd go to the dock, leave it to the water, and leave. If you took Bruce Wayne and with nothing but the clothes on his back, dropped him at the Marianas Trench, he's done. Hmm. That's it. You know, say goodbye to Bruce. To my mind, Aquaman is the Tarzan of the DC Universe. You know, he can, he can, he can live in places that most other people could not survive. And he's capable of talking to animals to getting them to do what he wants. No one says, oh, Tarzan, he talks to humans, he talks to animals, big deal. Yeah, how many Tarzan movies ended with a herd of elephants crashing in and destroying, you know, the, the entire lair of the bad guy? Um, the most recent Tarzan movie had him organizing the apes to beat up human beings. Being able to talk to you to the animals is a pretty formidable power. Getting them to be able to do what you want, holy crow, that can make you one of the ultimate badasses. That's why in, like, issue three or four, I had him attack Pearl Harbor by having him bring a flood, a a herd of blue whales into Pearl Harbor and flooding it out completely. You know, Um, my attitude was that Aquaman was quite possibly the most badass hero in the entire DC universe. I came up with the idea of the harpoon to make him even more badass. I mean, I decided to have him have long hair and a beard because I wanted his hair to be always moving when it was underwater. Mm-hmm. You know, so that you would be aware that he was standing around out of water, that he was underwater. I came up with the idea of the harpoon because I wanted him to look like a badass. If Aquaman, as he was before I wrote him, walked into a room, it's like, oh, hi, it's Aquaman. Okay. <laughs> if he walked into a room after a room with a long hair, the beard, and a harpoon on his arm, you're going, holy shit. Oh, hi, Aquaman. What can I do to help you? Please don't hurt me. <laughs> you know? I thought that that was the better way to approach the character. What I thought was interesting was that when I would tell people I was going to be writing Aquaman, Oh, hell. Um, when I told people that I was going to be writing Aquaman, the uh, response I got was pretty consistent, which was, I would say, people would say like, okay, you're writing Aquaman. Well, what are you going to be doing with it? And I would say, well, we're going to be bringing Mira back. And they go, oh, okay, that's fine. I said, and I'm going to be raising Atlantis. Oh, okay, that sounds interesting. Oh, and we're going to have his hand get eaten off by a piranha and replaced by a harpoon. Wait, what? What? <laughs> you know, what? Wait a minute. Back up. What? <laughs> you know, but but he commands sea creatures, not piranha. They just are care. They just care about eating. Um, and you know, and people would express outrage and confusion and bewilderment. But <laughs> oh my God, did they buy the book? 
And that's the bottom and line. That is the bottom line. That is that the things that I did to change him, although fans expressed outrage, got them to read the book. And that's really what it all comes down to. Now, I can't believe I have the opportunity to ask something like this because the, the opportunity has arisen. But it's a joke question, mind you, but I don't care. But since you're talking about Aquaman, have you ever been in a submarine? Have I ever been in a submarine, an actual submarine? Yeah. I mean, well, I've been in a submarine at Disney World. That counts. Then, yes. Perfect. All right. So now, going back over to Aquaman in general, one of the things that, you know, you had mentioned, and I never saw it that way with, you know, how you talk about how he's got the long hair and you can tell he's underwater because of how it flows. Yes. The Jason Momoa interpretation is pretty much yours, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. When Zack Snyder put up a picture of Jason Momoa as Aquaman, the fan reaction was interesting because the more recent fans said, well, that doesn't look anything like Aquaman. And the older fans were going, no, that's Peter David's Aquaman, <laughs> which I was you know, very pleased and flattered by. And the thing is with that character, that interpretation, what do you think of Momoa's portrayal of Aquaman in this? Oh, you know, Aquaman. I love. I I thought he was great. Well, now one of the questions that we ended up getting asked was in regards to writing novels, and one of the things that you're known for is the movie novelizations. You know, one of the ones I use as an example was the Batman Forever one. How much okay. of the original source material that you get from that, you know, the script that you're going to be adapting from, how much of it, it's, it's hard to, I had a point, I had a point here. Um, <laughs> with the novelizations, how does it feel when you end up doing that and then there's the stuff they end up cutting out? You're like, oh, I wrote that for nothing. Or, you know, well, at least I got it out there. Well, I mean, sometimes they cut stuff out that I know they're going to cut out. I mean, when I when I adapt when I novelized the first Spider-Man book, there was a whole scene at the end that's in my book that I'm sitting there novelizing it and knowing it's not going to be in the film. Uh, there was this whole scene at the end with J. Jonah James. I thought it's not going to be there. They're going to end it with Peter walking away from the cemetery and saying, "You know, I am Spider-Man," and that's going to be the end of the movie. And that was indeed the case. But it's not my job to worry about what they're going to cut. It's um, funny that you mentioned well, that Spider-Man that matter, one, though. It's not my job to worry about what they're going to include. It's my job to just do the best book version of the movie that I can possibly make. And indeed, I always thought that Alan Dean Foster, I thought, put best. He said that if you take a screenplay and turn it into a really good book, you are described as being a talented hack. Hmm. If you take a book and turn it into a really good movie, they give you an Oscar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Well, now, you, it's funny that you mentioned that Spider-Man novelization, though, because first off, I was unaware that that was uh, your work. I did not know that you did that one. Cause oh, yeah, I, that, I did, I did the, the first three. When I was growing up, the uh, that movie, all these years later, it's it's still it still holds up to an extent, but it's like one of those 
the hype around the movie was so memorable, you know? Oh, yeah. And, you know, I recently just came across this. Somebody uh, threw up on YouTube, and it's kind of funny because it's bootleg camera footage from a screening of Spider-Man back in 2002, and you okay. see, like, live audience reactions. You know, you hear, like, certain things, you know, the reactions to certain lines, scenes, etc. And it's kind of funny because back then that was considered, you know, an illegal practice to do, and now it's considered yeah. historical footage. But Pretty much. The, you know, is there anything comparable to that, you know, in regards to the hype behind something that was going on? Well, hype is fine as long as people keep it realistic and as long as they wait for the movie to come out. I mean, what makes me nuts is when photos leak and people dismiss an entire movie on the basis of a photograph. Or casting. I mean, people dismiss the first Batman movie because it was going to be starring Michael Keaton and directed by Tim Burton. And people said, oh, they're doing the Adam West People hated um, uh, the, the second Christian Bale movie because they saw photographs of Heath Ledger as the Joker, and they said, oh, no, he looks terrible. There were fans who said that Robert Downey was miscast as Tony Stark. Um, there, there are, you know, fans are always, always rendering judgments for no freaking reason. Hmm. And they asked me, what do I think of the, you know, what do I think of this movie or what do I think of this movie? And I always say I don't have any opinion on it until I actually see it on a movie screen. That's the perfect attitude to have for this. I mean, for me, the best example was some years ago when I was at a convention and I was on a panel with three other guys and we were asked about the announcement of Michael Keaton as Batman. And the other three guys on the panel were saying there's going to be a joke, that it's an insult, that and the other. And I said, well, you know, Michael Keaton is an actor, and Tim Burton is a director. And even though they're primarily known for comedy, I'm perfectly content to actually wait and see the film before I make any kind of judgment on it. It is the first and thus far in my life the only time where I have been booed <laughs> at a convention. <laughs> The guys on the panel looked at me like I had farted in synagogue or something. <laughs> now, flash forward to the same convention two years later, and I hear some fans talking. And they're saying, one is saying, did you hear they're going to be doing a second Batman movie? And the first fan says, well, I'll tell you one thing. It just better be Tim Burton and Michael Keaton, because otherwise <laughs> it's going to <laughs> And I just started laughing. So hard, because isn't it fascinating how opinions can turn around if you actually wait until you see the damned movie? Mm -hmm. My, my go-to one. It's insane. I mean, people love to trash films before they come out. I mean, the hatred for the all-female Ghostbusters was monumental. That helped kill that movie. Mm -hmm. You know what? I saw the all-females Ghostbusters. I thought it was fine. Yes. I thought it was perfectly entertaining. It did not destroy my childhood. It did not ruin the first Ghostbusters film. And by the way, let's remember that the second Ghostbusters film wasn't that good. 
It was actually better than Ghostbusters 2. So, you know, don't give me all this crap about, you know, oh, the female Ghostbusters film is so awful. No, it's not. People really need to get their heads out of their butts and stop putting all this criteria about, you know, the backstories of movies and what these films are doing to their childhood. You know, just enjoy it. It's just a freaking film. My uh, go-to thing with that in regards to, uh, you know, fan reactions before everything happened was when Daredevil was having production shots shown in regards to the, uh, from season one, the all-black suit where he's got, you know, the uh, the thing tied yes. around, his, the shirt tied around his face and everything, yeah. yeah. And I just remember the re- immediate reaction of, oh, this is going to be stupid, oh, and then you hear a couple of comic book fans, and I, I admit I'm that person where... Read a read an effing comic book, and you know the immediate reaction was, "Well, there's Frank Miller's Man Without Fear, where it's this exact thing." And yeah, I I loved how all those people poo pooed it beforehand, and now what's the general consensus about Netflix's uh, Daredevil, greatest uh, comic book television show of all time? Yeah, people. Okay. Yeah, people love Daredevil once they actually saw it. I thought that all the Netflix series were great. And it's funny because, like, even, you know, the most uh, derided one, which was uh, Iron Fist. Iron Fist. I, I liked it. I thought, you know, it was, it was, so it was a weird. decent people, series. People hated Iron Fist because they were faithful to the source material. They were upset because he didn't look like Shang-Chi. He looked like a blonde-haired, white Caucasian guy. I'm sorry, that's who Danny Rand is. Honestly, out of all of the shows, it's the most underrated one. And yeah, it, my favorite moment because I haven't seen season two. That's the like I'm so far behind. I'm still on the defenders. Yeah. And maybe one day in one decade I'll be able to get through it. But with you know that look for Iron Fist and that everything going on in the series, the elevator fight is one of the coolest scenes I've seen thus far. Yeah. It's on par with uh, Luke Cage's Bring the Ruckus with the you know car door. Mm-hmm. Uh, guys, we've been talking for an hour and a quarter. Are we going to be going much longer? If I can, we'll get out maybe two or three more questions off of Facebook. Okay. And then that should do it, I think. Yeah. Um, right. Let's go to uh, Brian Luke. With new, oh, yeah. With, uh, with new stories, writing, that, uh, writing new stories, that is, uh, do you have to take uh, COVID into account, wearing masks, things like that? No. You know, it, it's, <laughs> I mean, well, first of all, the two stories I'm writing right now, one is set back in the 1980s, and the other is sent in the far future. So it really doesn't apply to anything. So do I have to, to incorporate masks in COVID-19? No. I can pretty much assume that if COVID existed in the Marvel Universe, Mr. Fantastic would be able to cure it in about five minutes. Now, on the topic of nowadays, one of the hottest comics that's you know, on the sales charts and everything, is Al Ewing's Immortal Hulk. And as the godfather of great Hulk books, what is it like seeing somebody following in those gigantic footsteps of, you know, everyone's jade giant? It's, it's interesting. I mean, the, the, you know, it's, to my mind, he's basically kind of like doing the maestro in modern day, which is fine. You know, I mean, you know, he's, got, he's got the devil Hulk. Well, that's pretty much the maestro. But I did write the book for 12 years, so it's kind of hard to come up with something that I did not already write in some way, shape, or form. 
But and there are times when I'm reading the book where I'm finding it kind of confusing in terms of really following what the hell is going on. But, you know, overall, I appreciate the enthusiasm that people have for the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the things, you know, that I love about the run is he's heavily borrowing elements and, you know, making references to things that have happened throughout the whole uh, 50 plus year yeah. career of the Hulk, you know, and I wasn't, I wasn't thrilled that he had Doc Samson coming back to life in a, in a cemetery that had crosses in it. I mean, Doc's Jewish. What the hell is doing in a cemetery with cross? Hmm. So, you know, but, but other, you know, other than that. And you had made your return to the character uh, last year with the last call one shot. And yes. how did that come about? They asked me to write it. Well, I mean, not the last call, but they asked if I would be in writing a book that during my tenure on this on this idol. And I decided that I would write something that was set shortly after my departure from the book, in which I mean I had Bruce talking about the idea that he was suicidal. And so I decided to had to do a story in which he was suicidal and was endeavoring to really just end it all. But that he would talk, you know, since Betty worked in the suicide hotline, I thought it would be interesting if he called the suicide hotline that Betty worked at. And then he would be able to talk to Veronica and talk to her about Betty. And it would just be an interesting way to do an overview of their life. And it's one of it's. I love the fact also that, you know, during that whole, that year of everything, you know, Marvel reuniting legendary creative teams, you got to reunite with Dale and yeah. it was like you guys had never left. Oh, Dale's terrific. I mean, he's, he's such a wonderful artist. I, he, he never comes to America anymore, which I, I mean, well, right now we don't have any conventions anyway, but I haven't seen him in years, but uh, you know, he, he's a great guy. There's, You've had so many people that have worked together, you know, on your run, but Dale is the one that just immediately, you know, the team, you know, it's like you two are synonymous. It's like a Lee and Kirby or a, yeah. you know, Michelini and McFarlane. It's just like you're synonymous with each other. It's fantastic. Well, Dale is wonderful. Yeah. Okay. So what other Facebook questions? Okay. So from Shane Hagedorn. Um, regarding X-Factor 87, uh, what inspired such a unique take on a single-issue comic book story? And and also, with respect to, it looks like, Matrix, what what about him made the perfect noir lead for you? Well, what happened was Chris Claremont's writing style in X-Men really spoon-fed characterization to everybody. You always know, you always knew what was going through the characters' heads because Chris would tell you in length, he thought balloon sequences. You know, Storm would walk into a room and she would look around and she'd have thought balloons in which she would be thinking, this room is so small. It's, it's making me feel confined. It's causing me to remember when that time when I was a child and the building collapsed on me, which has given me ever since claustrophobia. God, could somebody open a window? I mean, you know, that was difficult. And that's what fans expected. I didn't write X Factor that way because that's not how I write. You didn't you judge characters by what they say and by what they do, not by what they're thinking. 
and fans were confused by that. I mean, I would be getting I would be getting complaints from fans because they felt that the characters had no personalities, and the reason they felt that was because I wasn't spoon feeding it to them the way that Chris had been doing so successfully for years. I mean, I don't say that to not Chris. It's Chris's writing style. And it certainly worked, but I didn't write that way. And I thought to myself, I need to do something so that the fans understand that the characters do indeed have personality. And I thought, I need to do a whole issue in which the the, the characters do nothing but talk about all the stuff that they're thinking. Mm -hmm. That way, the fans will know everything that's going through their minds and thus we'll be able to then understand what the characters are then saying and doing in, sub- in subsequent issues. And I thought to myself, well, what would be a, per- a sensible reason for them to be sitting around and talking about themselves? And I said, well, you know, they're a government organization, and government organizations will frequently debrief people after they've been in a stressful situation. And... You know, so I will use the, once again, the one second in the Marvel Universe. It's like Jake Lockley's the only cabbie in the Marvel Universe. Every time you get into a cab, Jake Lockley's driving. Well, every time you use psychiatrist, you bring in Doc Samson. And I thought, I'll bring in Doc, and I'll have them each sitting down with Doc and talking about themselves. And I'll do that for an entire issue so that the fans will stop complaining that the characters don't have any depth. And it worked better than I could possibly have imagined, especially in terms of Quicksilver. Because I was deluged with letters from people who told me that they had hated Quicksilver for 20 years until I had him talking about, have you ever been stuck behind someone in the ATM who doesn't know how to use it? Everybody's done that. Everybody's been stuck behind someone in the ATM who doesn't know how to use it or stuck behind someone at a fast food place who doesn't understand the concept of Whopper, no pickles. I mean, you know, everyone has had their lives inconvenienced. And when Quicksilver says, imagine every second of every day, that's what your life is like, fans said, okay, I now totally understand Quicksilver. <laughs> and indeed, Evan Peters, who played him in the, uh, in the uh, X-Men movies, was at a San Diego Con panel and was asked about Quicksilver. And Evan said, have you ever been stuck online at an ATM behind someone who doesn't know how to use it? Now, thank God I was not in the audience because I would have gone, dude, that's my interpretation of Quicksilver. What the hell? You know, but I wasn't, fortunately enough. Um, but the fans absolutely love that issue, and it's probably the single most popular issue of X-Factor I ever wrote. Indeed, it may be one of the most popular issues of a comic book I've ever written. <laughs> People, yeah, God, you know, God knows I've signed enough copies of that. The only comic I've signed more copies of than X-Factor 87 is Spider-Man 2099 number one, and that's only because we sold them over a million copies of <laughs> um, That actually, in terms of, yeah. In terms of Madrox, Matt, actually... The angle that I use for Madrox is something my wife came up with. She was the one who suggested, you know, all, thus far, whenever he creates multiple, they're all just exact duplicates of Jamie. 
what would happen if the different multiples start displaying different personalities? Because everyone has different personalities. You behave differently with your friends than you do with your boss. You behave differently with your boss than you do with your parents. You behave differently with your parents than you do with your priest or your rabbi. You know, mm. we all have different aspects. You behave differently with your wife than you do with your child. I mean, we all have different aspects of our personality that come to the fore depending upon the situation. And wouldn't it be interesting if the different Madrox personalities all behave, all displayed different aspects of Madrox? And I just kind of took that and ran with it. And apparently no one else had ever thought of that. And as a result, my interpretation of Madrox turned out to be very popular, which was nice because before I was doing Madrox, the perception of Marvel Comics was that Jamie Madrox's power is that he's it is, that Jamie Madrox is a boring guy whose power is that he's able to turn into lots of boring guys. <laughs> well, not when I was writing him, babe. Okay. All right, uh, so I think that's going to wrap this episode up. Mm-hmm. Peter, it was an absolute pleasure having you on today. Happy to do it. Before we go, yes, Peter David, writer of Stuff, I believe the last question is, how can people get a hold of you on social media? You stole uh, my I'm line. On Twitter and I'm on Facebook. Twitter and Facebook. Okay. And, I, and I have my own website, peterdavid.net. And what is the uh, Twitter handle? Peter David underline P-A-D. All right, so... For The Marvelous, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Peter David. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior!